0: So I'm sure most of you are aware by now, the last Monday, uh, there was a, uh, an earthquake that hit parts of Turkey and Syria uh, that caused mass destruction. Um, uh, last look at the, the numbers of the death toll, it was 25,000 people. 25,000 people. I don't know if you know this or not, but the population of Xenia is 25,000 people. Could you imagine that in the course of a day, this city and its inhabitants, crushed under the weight of itself? 25,000 people. <clears throat> when we experience this, things like this happen, we should ask questions. We should ask big questions. We should, we should talk about the value of life we should talk to you about the purpose of life. We should ask questions about God. We should look up. We should ask those difficult questions. Now, you might be here this morning and you might say, <clears throat> um, I don't believe there is a God. And first of all, really glad you're here. I mean, for you to come to a church building and to, to sit with us around uh, people that do, like that's brave and I'm really glad that you're here and I hope that what we talk about in terms of love you actually experience from us, I'm glad you're here. But if you would say like there is no God and, uh, and you, would, you, would, you would point to this, uh, th- this event, right? And, and you would say if we look at this through uh, purely uh, naturalistic eyes, right? If, if uh, life on this planet, including human life, it is the result of evolutionary processes, natural processes of one thing leading to another, then there's no divine value to a human life. There's no divine purpose to it. That, that beyond the propagation of the species, there's really nothing more that can be said. And, that, and, and it's really, it comes down to the survival of the fittest. If you look at it through that lens, if there is no God, and you see through that lens, then you look at this event and you would say, in light of a planet that's got a population of 8 billion, what's 25,000? I mean, what's a zia compared to the rest of the world? And when it comes to like the, the, the benefits of this group of people and what they gave to humanity... Really, they were more takers than givers. These were people who were very, very poor, and most of them were refugees. They took more than they give. So so through that lens, the rest of us are better off. Survival of the fittest, that's what it says. That's what it means. And so you would look at the events that that are happening there, and you say, there's no reason to mourn or grieve over this. however, if you would look at those events and you would say this is grieving there is a cause to mourn if somehow on some deep level you look at this and the loss of 25,000 people and you say this is not the way it's supposed to be then aren't you saying that life has value and where does that value come from does it come from ourselves is it, is it value we impose or on ourselves do we say I have value and therefore I do Or does that value come from someone bigger, someone higher? Is there purpose along with that value? And if there's purpose, then 25,000 people is such a waste. Really what it gets down to is, is to ask big questions about God, if there's a God who gives value and purpose, does this God care about what's happened? And ultimately, is this God good? Is he good? Now, from my limited human perspective, I look at this event and I can't see meaning in it. As human beings, we have this tendency to find meaning in suffering. And from my limited perspective this morning, I can't see meaning or purpose behind that. However, that doesn't mean that there's not any. And there's a lot of things that I don't know. But here's one thing that I do know. We have a God who has taken on flesh, who became human, and who suffered among us, and who suffered for us. So the one thing we can't say is that God doesn't know or care, because he intimately knows. With that, can we take a moment to pray? Heavenly Father, <clears throat> Help us to see our desperate need for you. All of humanity desperately needs you and help us to see it. Help us to stop pretending like we don't. God, I pray for those people this morning on the other side of the planet who have lost loved ones, who have lost homes, who have lost everything, who maybe even themselves are lost and they can't get to food and they can't get to water and they can't get to help. God, will you be their help? Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Excuse me. Uh, We're gonna be uh, in Luke again this morning. Luke chapter 18 through part of chapter 19. Uh, Specifically, we're gonna be in 19 verse 11. That's where we're gonna start. Uh, You can turn there uh, with me now. Uh, We are on uh, the last leg of a journey with Jesus. Um, It's a journey that starts in chapter nine when Jesus turns to his disciples and he says this. He says, the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Um, We talked a little bit about this last week. Jesus' favorite term for himself is the son of man. The son of man, and that's the a, a term that comes uh, from Daniel chapter 7, where Jesus or where the, the prophet says that there's a, a son of man who's going to appear in the throne room of God before the ancient of days, it's another name for God, and, and God the Father is going to give him power and authority, he's going to make him king over a kingdom that rights all wrongs and that lasts forever. And so we're meant to understand that this is a human being, but this is also a divine being. This is a God-man. This is human, but this is only God could wield the kind of authority and power that would require for a kingdom to right all wrongs and last forever. And this is what Jesus describes himself as. He says, I'm the son of man. I'm this individual, and I'm going to become king. And here's how I'm going to become king. I'm going to go to Jerusalem, and I'm going to get killed. No coronation has ever looked like this. He's going to become king because he's going to go to Jerusalem, and people are going to lift him up, and instead of putting him on a throne, they're going to put him on a cross. That's how Jesus becomes king. But he rises from the dead, and he ascends to heaven, okay? So immediately after Jesus says, this is what we're going to go do, he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. I'm going to become king by laying down my life only to take it up, and who's coming with me? This is a call for us, not just his disciples, not just the people he was talking to, it's a call for all of us to follow him in the way of laying down our lives in order to pick up the life that he wants to give us. And then in verse 51, it says this, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. That's where the last journey begins. He's going to Jerusalem. And so uh, we started uh, the, the last leg of this journey last week in chapter 17. And it concludes this morning in chapter 19, verse 28, where it says he arrives in Jerusalem. This is the last leg of the journey. Now, the key verse in this whole section is in 18.8, where it says, The Son of Man comes, will he find faith? And and there's there's a couple things that you need to understand about this. They thought that the Son of Man, the Messiah, the Christ, the King, was going to come one time and establish his kingdom. And that's when it would start. That's not what happened. The Son of Man comes twice. The first time he comes, he comes weak. He comes small, he comes poor, he comes helpless, he comes in the form of a baby, and he comes really, really insignificant. And that culminates in his death on a cross, his resurrection and his ascension. That means he's coming back. The second time he's coming back is with power, with authority, he's coming back with this kingdom. Okay? So there's, there's two advents of this Son of Man. And when he comes back, the key question is, Will he find faith? And we talked about the fact of this last week. Faith is not a possession. Faith is a disposition. Faith is a quality of character toward that object, specifically toward him. And and there's this beautiful story of uh, of friends who have a paralyzed uh, brother who who, who, who they wanna get him to Jesus to to, to see that uh, Jesus heal him and they can't get him to Jesus because of the crowd surrounding a house and so they go up on the roof, they dig through this earthen roof, they lower their friend to Jesus and he's healed and Jesus commends their faith. What is he commending? Is he commending some sort of possession of faith they have inside their heart or is he commending a disposition of their faith which led to action? which led to doing something about it. You see, a lot of people, they talk about their faith. I'm gonna share my faith. And what they really mean by that is they're sharing their belief. But the reality is it should lead to action. If it's something that you hold up here but it never works its way into your heart and out of your hands, it's not really faith. It results in action. When the Son of Man comes, will he find people living this way? And so that's the question. Now the final leg of this journey we started last week, we ended last week by talking about this eschatological picture that Jesus gives us at the end of chapter 17. Uh, eschatology is this big the, you know, theological word that it really means the end of the world. He's talking about the end of the world, okay? When he returns, and he says that um, it's like the two judgments that you see in the Old Testament, one of a flood and one of on Sodom and Gomorrah, one, one is fire and one is water. And, and he says just in those days, like people were, were partying and they were, they were feasting and eating and drinking, and they were getting married and they were starting careers and they were doing life, and all of a sudden judgment comes down and everything changes. And he says, when the Son of Man comes, it's going to be like that. He's going to interrupt the life that you thought you had going for you. And he says, some are going to be taken and some are going to remain. And the disciples say, taken where? And Jesus simply says, where the corpse is, that's where the vulture gathers. I don't know what exactly that means, but it's not good. That's not life. That's a picture of death, right? That's not good. Um, We need to understand that uh, eschatologically in, in the New Testament, it's not about us going to heaven, it's about heaven coming to earth, Look at Revelation 21. So the ones who are taken are judged, and the ones who remain are saved. Right? That's where we ended up last week. We're gonna start this week with another uh, bit of eschatology, another uh, section of Scripture that talks about the end of the world. This time it's in parable form. It's a, it's a metaphorical story that points to the truth. So we're gonna be in 19, beginning in verse 11. Ready? Here we go. As they heard these things... He's proceeded to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and because they supposed that the kingdom of God was to appear immediately. He said, therefore, a nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and then return. Calling 10 of his servants, he gave them 10 minas. That's a, a denomination of money. And he said to them, engage in business until I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him saying, we do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, having received the kingdom, he ordered these servants to whom he had given the money to be called to him, that he might know what they had gained by doing business. The first came before him, saying, Lord, your mina has made 10 minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good servant, because you've been faithful in very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, your mina has made five minas. And he said to him, And at my coming, I might have collected it with interest. And he said to those who stood by him, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 minas. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 minas. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. Okay, so if we look at the tragedy of an earthquake on the other side of the world that takes the lives of 25,000 people, and we ask the question, how could a good God allow that? Don't passages of scripture like this, don't they cause some of us to ask the question, how could a good God condemn people to hell? I wanna be clear about this. The, the, the picture is, is one of judgment, of coming underneath the sword. This is a picture of condemnation this is pointing toward an everlasting reality we call hell. How can a good God send people to hell? Now, there's two lines of, of questioning from this passage. The first line of questioning is, is this. Um, why do some people hate God? Why do some people blame God? Uh, does that hatred justly result in damnation? Is that proportion? Is, is the punishment proportionate to the crime, so to speak? The second line of questioning is, is this. If one is a lover of God, if one is, a, you know, one of these productive servants who will be found faithful when the Son of Man returns, how then do we live? How do you live in light of this judgment? What kind of life results in eternal life? Now, to retell the parable, basically, the problem in here, that's Jesus. Jesus has come and he will go to the cross, he will become king, he will rise, he will ascend to heaven, and he gets his kingdom, and he brings it back. Kingdom will come, and when he brings his kingdom back, what will he discover? Now, um, before he goes, he entrusts people. The miners in this story, they stand for life. He's given you a life, what will you do with it? He's given you a life, what will you make of it? Will it be for him, or will it be for yourself? And you notice, so there's some servants in here that are faithful. There's some servants here that are not faithful. They, um, they even say things uh, like, like this from uh, verse 21. I was afraid of you because you're severe. You take what you don't deposit and reap what you don't sow. Like, these are people that think that, that this nobleman is mean. And so as a result, they're not going to live for him. Then there's a group of people, they just flat out hate him. They just hate him. And whether or not that's legitimate, probably not. But they just hate him. So what do we do with this? And so how we answer these two lines of questions this morning is we're going to look at the passages that precede this. From chapter 18, verse 1 through 19:10. 10, uh, this line of question is really answered. What does it look like to be a lover of God? What does it look like to be a hater of God? What does it look like to be a lover of God that that results in eternal life and a hater of God that results in hell? And so uh, we're gonna dive in. Now, for the sake of time, we're not going to read uh, every line. Uh, There's really a lot here. I'm gonna summarize it for you. I'm hoping that you will read it on your own and then I'm I'm gonna bottom line it. So chapter 18, the first eight verses, uh, Jesus tells another parable. It's a story that has two main characters to it. The first character is what we would call an unrighteous judge. Jesus says he's a guy who, um, he's in a position of authority, but he doesn't fear God, and he doesn't respect humanity. He doesn't respect people. In other words, he's in a position of authority for what he can get out of it. The other character is a poor widow, and she has been on the receiving end of some form of injustice. Some form of injustice. We don't know what it is. So she goes to the judge to get justice, and he refuses. And so what does she do? She goes back over and over and over and over again until the judge relents. He gives her justice, not because he's a good guy, not because he's a righteous judge, but because of her persistence. And this is an argument from lesser to greater. And Jesus is saying, if if an unrighteous judge will finally give justice, how much greater is a righteous God gonna do it for you when you ask him? He's pointing to this. Now, how many of you have been on the receiving end of injustice? How many of you have been hurt by other people? How many of you have been abused by other people? How many of you have, have, have things taken from you by other people? How many of you have been on the receiving end of injustice? Your character maligned, hurt, damaged, not just merely insulted. Have you experienced injustice? Where do you go to get Justice. You see, this is, is, is where the roads begin to split between the lover of God and the hater of God. The hater of God will turn to human authority, human government, or they'll take matters into their own hands to get justice, which often results in vengeance. The lover of God goes to God. Where will you find justice? You see, God is the one who, if not in this life, in the life to come, will right all wrongs. Where do you go for justice? Well, um, the next uh, little bit here, we, we understand that the, the crowd that's following Jesus, not all of them are fans of his. There's some that are out to, um, to, to get him, to, to really literally destroy him. And uh, numbering among those people are a group of people called Pharisees. They're religious leaders, uh, very, uh, very pious people. And uh, Jesus tells another parable that includes Pharisees, but also another group of people, uh, tax collectors. A tax collector in that society was somebody who was seen as a traitor uh, because they worked for the Roman government. They collect uh, taxes from fellow citizens, and they made a profit on it. Uh, Tax collectors were hated, all right? So Jesus tells a story. A, A priest and a tax collector go into the temple to pray. Sort of sounds like the beginning of a joke. And uh, the, 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 the the Pharisee gets up and he, and he begins to pray and he's, he's, he's praying loud and obnoxiously. He says, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust adulterers, or even like this tax collector. And then he begins to give his resume about all the things that he's done really good. All the things that that are right and, and how he's abstained from all the things that are wrong. He gives his sort of spiritual resume he's as if to say, when it comes to the balance of the scales between my right and my wrong, my, my right way outbalances my wrong. In other words, He justifies himself. The other guy, the tax collector, he stands at a distance and he beats his breasts and he cries out, God, have mercy on me. I'm a sinner. And Jesus says, the last guy, he's the one who goes home justified. Not the first guy. He's justified. Now, I think there's a lot of us who would say we've been on the receiving end of injustice, how many of us would admit that we've been on the giving end of it? The, the reality is, is that, that we too have hurt others. We too have done damage. We too have caused injustice. We are sinners, fallen, broken, messed up. We too have committed injustice. So when it comes to that injustice and recognizing there's that sword of of, of judgment that comes down, what do you do in light of that? What do you do when you stand before God? Do you get up in front of God and say, well, I'm really a good person and all the good things that I've done, they really outweigh all the bad things that I've done. And here's this list that I can give you and show you and here's my spiritual resume. I'm really a good person. We try to justify ourselves. Or do we say to God, I can't justify ultimately, every injustice I've ever committed against a human being, I've ultimately committed against you, and I can't justify it. All I can do is beg for mercy. That's all I could do. Now, the Pharisee was a very religious guy, right? And you would even say, like, he's not a hater of God, right? Because he goes to the temple, and he prays. But, but how is he talking to God? He basically, he uses God's law and he twists it and he turns it in order to make him look good and justify himself because of it. But does he think that God is greater than him or does he think he's on par with God or maybe even better than God as he justifies himself? Now we live in a culture that denies its religiosity. A culture that would say we we are definitely not religious at all. But in fact, when you drill right down to it, our culture is very religious. If you define religious as as people who who have a set of standards and and a law that they follow and they want other people to follow too and they justify themselves accordingly, then our culture is very religious. It is. The the difference though is the Pharisee, he tries to justify himself based on God's law, which he twisted. Our culture has come up with its own law. It's what sociologists call self-affirming or self-authoritative or self-authorizing, right? It comes up with the rules. It writes the rules for how to live, and it often rewrites those rules as it goes along in order to fit its own narrative or the moment. But, but ultimately, by those standards that you write, you then get to say, I'm innocent. I'm righteous. I'm good. You look at our culture, and, and how many people have you ever met say, I'm a bad person? How many people have you met and said, like, I'm a good person? Like, I haven't killed anybody. I haven't, you know, I I haven't done, like, horrible things. Like, look at all the good things. I'm a good person. And if there's a heaven, like, I deserve to go to it. Like, self-justifying. The the, the thing is, is, like, with the, the first widow, the widow, right, she turns to God for justice. That's an act of dependence on God. And the opposite is to be independent of God. And here with this, to cry out for mercy, that once again, that's an act of dependence on God for His mercy. But to stand back and say, I don't need that, I could justify myself, that's an act of independence from God. You see, a hater of God is going to justify themselves, they're going to try to absolve their own sins. But the lover of God, they know their sin. And their only recourse is to beg for mercy. One's dependent one's independent. Look at the next bit. Uh, Verses 15 through 17. This is uh, short enough to to, to read. Um, Too far. Now, uh, they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him saying, let the children come to me and do not hinder them for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And I love this, and I think everybody does. What a beautiful picture, right? Infants coming to Jesus, and he's blessing them, and he's touching them, and he's loving on them. Do you know that Luke writing this to the culture in which he was communicating to, this would have been shocking. In the culture in which Luke was writing to, children weren't worth anything. In fact, in a hierarchy of a home, a slave was worth more than a child. A Roman father had the option when a child was born to him to either look at the child when it was presented to him and accept it or to ignore the child and the child would be taken out and left to to die of exposure. It would have been literally tossed outside the front door and left to die because in that society it wasn't worth anything. For Jesus to hold little infants, for him to bless them For him to to, to love on them, this was different. But here's what Jesus is doing. He's holding up a child. He says, to such, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. You can't have the kingdom of God unless you receive it like a child. And He's talking about two dimensions of what it means to be a child. One is needy. Completely needy. Completely helpless. Completely in need of a caregiver in order to provide. And the other is small small, insignificant. You see, that really doesn't define many of us. Many of us are attempting to live big, to be large and in charge. Many of us are going through life self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. We don't need anything, and we don't need anybody. We're big. And you see, the hater of God the hater of God will see themselves as sovereign and lord over their own little universe, their master and commander over their, over their own fate. But the lover of God, lover of God sees themselves beggared and inadequate, needy and small. In other words, dependent. Dependent on God where the other is trying to be dependent of God. Well, the next person that Jesus encounters on the journey is someone who's simply referred to as the rich young ruler. Um, and, and you could probably equate him to somebody in our society who maybe is, uh, is a wealthy young lawyer or a doctor who has a successful practice, um, who's, uh, who's a devout believer. Uh, he is somebody that you would probably look up to and, um, and admire and maybe be envious of uh, or, or jealous of this person. Well, he comes to Jesus and he calls him good teacher. And he asks, what does he need to do in order to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said, well, that's interesting, you call me good. What's your standard for good? You see, there's only really one standard for good, and that's God. What is your standard for good? He says, okay, well, what about, what are you doing? What are you, you know, as far as God's standard, how are you doing at obeying the 10 commandments? You're murdering, adult, you know, committing adultery, you know, stealing, lying, you know, how you treat your parents, all that sort of stuff. And, and the guy says, I'm doing great. Like I'm checking off all those boxes, like I'm killing it when it comes to the Ten Commandments. But see, Jesus knows the truth. Jesus can see his, his heart. He knows. The first commandment is you shouldn't have any other gods. You shall not have any other gods besides him. What is this man worshiping? Jesus knows his heart. And rather than confronting the guy and says, "I know you don't really love God," what Jesus is going to do is he's going to give him a test to reveal to himself his own heart. Go and sell everything you have. Give it to the poor come follow me. It says the man is really sad and he walks away from Jesus because he was very wealthy. In Matthew, we read Jesus saying, you can't love God and money. You'll hate one and you'll love the other, but you can't love both. In other words, if you love money, you hate God. And this is what this man has just learned about his own heart. See, the object of his desire is material wealth. And the object of his fear is to lose that material wealth. He is living for the money that results in hatred towards God. See, the hater of God will choose the objects of their desires and the objects of their fears over God. They'll choose wealth rather than God. The lover of God chooses God. Again, one is dependent and one is trying to live independent well uh, the last bit of, of Luke 18 is about a blind man and he hears that Jesus is passing by and he calls out son of David which means he's, he has some clue about who Jesus is son of David have mercy on me and a and, and crowd around him they try to, to quiet him they try to shut him up and he gets all the louder son of David have mercy on me and God says bring him here And they bring him to Jesus. And Jesus says, what do you want me to do for you? And he says, I want to be healed. I want you to restore my sight. I want to see again. And Jesus simply says, this this is faith. And, and, And based on this faith, like you're healed. Literally, you're saved. It's like, again, this is one of those down payments on the cross. The man is saved because of his faith. Now, we would look at that and we're like, is this really faith for a guy who's sick who wants to be healed? I mean, is that really faith? You know what the reality is? Is that there's a lot of us who um, we have need, we have sometimes even great need, uh, but when we find what it's going to take to get that need met, um, we don't follow through. Here's an example of this we have lots of medical professionals in the room. I- ask them after the gathering Have you ever, ever had a patient come to you and say, um, uh, here's, the, here's the symptoms, here's what's going on with me physically and, and right away as a medical professional we are like, this is curable. Like, stop eating this. Like, your cholesterol's through the roof, cut out the butter. Like, you know, like exercise. You know, stop drinking that. Stop doing, like, change your lifestyle a little, little bit. Like, like, this is really curable. And they say, okay, doc, and they walk out and the next time you see them nothing has changed. Right? They have a need but, but whether or not they have enough to show up and just, and just do it, for someone who's struggling with, with, with alcoholism or they're struggling, struggling with drug abuse, and they have the opportunity and they're given resource after resource in order to change, and yet they don't because in the end, they can't let go. They can't let go of what's killing them in order to embrace what could, could, could save them, help them. You look at the, the individual who says, I want to be a better father, I want to be a better husband. There's practical things you can do to be a better father and a better husband. Here they are, but they don't follow through. Someone who says, I'm really lonely. Wow, you know what? There's a whole lot of Christians in community who would welcome you in. Now nah, I'm busy that night. Like there's, there's all sorts of things and we all do this on some level. Well, we have a need, but we won't follow through to have the need met. You see, here this man is and he has enough faith in Jesus to say, help Help. I think so often, so much of uh, of our refusal to change comes down to one thing. We're too prideful to ask for help. See, the lover of God will say it. The lover of God will shout it. Help me, Jesus. The one who hates God, however, they might have a need, but they're not gonna ask for it. Again, one is dependent, and the other one is independent. Well, we move on to the chapter 9, and we meet Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus, uh, you know the song, was a man of shorter stature. Um, He was uh, vertically challenged, and... Uh, he wanted to see Jesus, but he couldn't see over the top of people's heads. He was also a tax collector, really a boss of tax collectors. He, he had a lot of money that was gained through taxing his fellow his citizens, and, and, and he was a pretty wealthy guy. But he wanted to see Jesus, and he couldn't see Jesus on his own, so he climbed up a tree. And so Jesus, as he's walking by, looks up in the tree, and he calls him by name. He says, I'm eating at your house today. And people, again, are taken back by this, that he would go and eat with a tax collector. He would go and eat with a a traitor, that he would go and eat with this, like, just deplorable human being. And Jesus goes, and he he has dinner with him. He throws a party for Jesus, and, 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 and at no point does Jesus, like, confront the guy and be like, I know all the things that you've done. Like, I know about all the money you've taken. I know how you've swindled people. I know how you've extorted people. Time to come clean, Zacchaeus no he just loved on him and the result is Zacchaeus just felt conviction he was like I'm gonna give it back like anything that I've taken I shouldn't have taken I'm gonna give it all back I'm gonna let it go I'm gonna let it go and there's this beautiful line in that story where Jesus essentially looks at Zacchaeus and he says Zacchaeus you're the reason I came He says this, the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Essentially, he's saying, That's you, Zacchaeus. I came for you. And I think that there's a a really good synonym for the word lost, and it's the word adrift. To, To be adrift is to float without control, right? It's to be without anchor or to be without mooring. Adrift. Jesus came. To anchor you, Jesus came to moor you to Him. Je- Jesus came so that you could find a place that would not move, that you would find in Him a solid rock. He came to anchor us and to moor us to Himself. What a beautiful picture. But you see, it requires dependence, willingness. See, the hater of God, they think that they're found. They think that they're an anchor unto themselves. They think they don't need him. But the lover of God must need. We recognize need, and we see that the lover of God knows that we're lost without him. Well, we can go back now. Go back to chapter 19, again, 26 and 27. I tell you that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. But as for these enemies of mine, who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slaughter them before me. The haters of God are ones, as we just discussed, they want to be independent of God. They want to find their own justice. They want to justify themselves. Uh, they, uh, they, they want to be large and in charge. Uh, they, they want to prefer wealth and choose wealth rather than God. And, and, and ultimately, um, there are people who don't think they're lost. They think that they're just fine. All of this adds up to a person who over and over again rejects God. They want to be independent of God. They want to be free of God. And we ask this question, is it just for a God to condemn a hater to hell? Is that just? Well, what is hell? You know, scripturally, uh, hell is described as um, a a reality of, of weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's suffering, right? It's also described as a place called Gehenna, which was, it was the garbage dump outside of Jerusalem. It becomes symbolic for what it means to be cast off or cast away or outside, cut off from the people of God and the person of God. But how is that the result? You know, in, in Scripture, especially in, uh, in, in John's writing, we find three things out about Jesus. It says in John, first of all, that Jesus is light. It doesn't say that he gives light. It says Jesus is light. Okay? Okay? Light symbol of truth. He is the truth. And so if you are anchored to him, if you are more to him, then you are anchored to that which is true. Regardless of the time in which you live and the place in which you live, you are anchored to that which is totally and completely true. He is light. So to, to reject that anchor is to choose darkness, is to choose lies. It also says That he is love. Not simply that Jesus loves, but that he is love. He is the embodiment of what love is. That he, more than anything, more than anyone, wants the the highest good for you. He loves you. He is the source, in fact, of all love. What happens if you reject the source of love? to to live in in a reality of hatred or indifference. He also says that he is life. He is life. Not just that life comes from him or that he creates life. Like, he is life. To be anchored to him is to be anchored to the source of life, to be anchored to the source of thriving, to be anchored to all that comes with it. He is life life. And so to reject that, to walk away from that, is to walk away from life and choose death. And not a death that happens once and you get over it. It's a death that you experience every moment from then on out. What then is hell? It's a reality of being cast in a sea of darkness, in hatred and indifference forever. A drift in death. And you would look at that and you would say, is it mean for God to do that to people that hate him? Consider this. God's never going to enforce himself on you. He's never going to make you tie yourself to him. It's not mean. It's God being a gentleman. You see... It says it here in the passage, to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has, not even what he has will be taken away. Jesus is referring to himself. I'm available, he says. And if you want me, you get me. I'm available now, but I won't always be. So don't worry if you don't want me. Someday I won't be an option. What then is heaven? What's heaven? I'm gonna use a seasonal analogy here. Let's say it's Christmas and you're a kid, and you come down on Christmas morning and there's two presents underneath the tree. One is huge, and you tear into to that presence to find the USS flag. A six-foot GI Joe aircraft character. Now, some of you don't know what this is. But you need to understand, this is the best toy that has ever been made for a child. <laughs> I don't care if you're a boy or a girl, no Barbie mansion ever <laughs> had the majestic beauty of the USS flag. You come down, you open that package up, and that's, that's the prize. Like, that's, that's beautiful, right? Now, the next thing you open is, is a six-pack of socks. Which is the prize? Which is the one you want? I mean, socks are great. I love socks, right? Your feet get stinky without socks. You really need them. Socks are great. Um, however, if mom and dad return the socks the next day, are you really gonna be broken up about it? When you think about heaven, what's the prize? You know, we're told about heaven like, it's a painless reality without suffering. And that's true. We understand about heaven that there's its, it's blissful happiness, its, it's complete joy, and that's true. And, and we're told that, that heaven is, is a reality where you become your truest self, like, like that the person that you were made to be is fulfilled, and that's true. And, and, and we're told that, that, that the deepest desires of your heart that went unfulfilled in this life, the things that you were really, really meant to do and be and all that, it comes true. That's true. But is that the prize? Is is it, it, painless, blissful, uh, complete fulfillment, like, is that the USS flag? Is that is that the aircracker? Is that the prize? Like, where's God in your heaven? Is, is God, like, in the background somewhere? Is God, like, doing the maintenance? Is God the janitor of heaven? It's nice that he's there, but... Let me ask you this. Like, if you could have a painless, blissful, uh, just self-fulfilling, uh, like all of that kind of life in a reality of heaven, but it came without God, would you want it? And you see, if you would answer yes to that question, here's what you're saying. You're saying, I only want God for what I get from him. It means you don't want God. Are you a lover of God or a hater of God? See, God's not content to be your socks. Do you think he deserves to be? So if you would be here this morning, you would say, why should I love God? What's the motive? Um, Look back with me. 18.31 through 33. This is the part we skipped over. And taking the 12, he said to them, See, we're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. I want you to understand this whole book, this whole Bible, is about what Jesus is about to do. Everything that has been spoken of by the prophets is about to come true. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he'll be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day he will rise. This is the climax of the whole story. This is the point of it all, that since from the very beginning, when we first rejected God, when we first rebelled against him, when we first went into our hatred of him, he set about a plan to get us back. He set about a plan to redeem us, to save us, to rescue us, to pursue us. That's what this whole thing has been about. Thousands of years of redemptive history have been bent toward getting you Jesus takes on flesh and he goes to the cross and he lives the life that you can't live in order to die this death, a death full of darkness as the light of the world is cut off, a death without love as the Father turns his face away from him, an eternal love relationship broken, Because now the son bears the sins, your sins, my sins, the sins of the world. And life, life itself dies. Why? So that you and I could be anchored to God for eternity. So that you and I could know life, and know light, and know love. The reason why you should love God is because he loved you first. He loved you first. He's done everything. That's why you should love him. That's why you should choose him. That's why everything should be about him. If you'd be here this morning and you'd say, I was a hater of God, I have looked elsewhere for justice, including vengeance. I have looked elsewhere. For justification, I've tried to justify myself. I've tried to prove myself. I've tried to prove myself to the world. I've tried to prove myself to myself. I've, I've tried to be large and in charge. I've tried to be tough and brave. I've tried to be everything that I believe I should be and I keep failing at it. I've tried. I've tried to be independent. I'm done being a hater of God. I'm willing to be dependent. I'm willing to get justice from him. I'm willing to ask him for mercy. I'm willing to go to him for healing. I'm willing to go to him for everything. I'm willing to be small and needy and helpless. I'm willing to be dependent. You see, if that's where you're at this morning, Paul says to the Romans that if you believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, then you will be saved. You go from being a hater of God to being a lover of God. You are anchored to him, his life, his light, his love, yours, forever. See, one of the the first things that we see in the New Testament that happens when somebody begins to be a lover of God is that they're baptized. there's a tub of water here this morning. Isn't that convenient? See, if you're here this morning and you would say, I was a hater of God, but now I'm a lover of God. I will cling to him. I will anchor myself to him. When we are baptized, we go into the water and it symbolizes death. It symbolizes a dying to self. It symbolizes the, the fact that we are choosing to, to, to kill the hater of God in us, and when we come out of that water, we're saying, we are becoming lovers of God. We are be, becoming people who are anchored to Him. Based on what He's done for us, what He's accomplished for us, we choose to follow Him. That's the statement that we make when we're baptized. And so let me ask, you, are you a lover of God? Have you been baptized? And remember, I want to point this out. Baptism isn't necessary for salvation. Okay? It's not necessary for salvation. But it is an act of obedience. It is an act of saying, I submit to you because you're king. And you see, so long as you say or you confess or like out, you know, you have this belief that he's king but you never submit to his authority, that's not acting on the faith that you have. So if if you're here this morning, you've never been baptized, but you're a lover of God. First of all, he did it too, Jesus. And if today's the day for that, then in a moment I'm gonna pray, I'm gonna walk out that door, and you can meet me back there. I have clothes for you to change into, I have a place for you to change. We have towels for you, we have everything you need. And you can do that today. You can do that today. I'll close with this: How do you know if you're a lover or a hater of God? Ask your heart this question: Is God the bane of my existence, or is He the prize of my existence? Is God what I need to be removed from my life so that I can have it the way I want? Is God the one who's standing in the way of my fulfillment? Is God even somebody I even consider at all? Is he the bane of my existence or is he the prize of my existence? Is he who all this is for? Let's pray.